Welcome to episode 12 of the Corporate Real Estate Insider Podcast. We have an awesome episode today. Uh, we're going to start by covering a couple of the very interesting news stories that have come out recently. Going to also be talking about office occupancy levels. There have been um, some pretty interesting reports that have come out over the last now month or so around what's happening across different cities across the U.S. as well as internationally. Uh, we also are going to spend a little bit of time talking about some of the buildings that have traded recently at major discounts to what they were purchased at. And lastly, uh, also going to be talking about some of the news articles that uh, we think are very wrong and some of the statistics that are being put out or positions being defended by certain stakeholders that are super biased and uh, unfortunately falling into the wishful thinking category. Uh, a good reminder to always consider the source of information when you're reading something. So uh, with that, let's get started with the news. Brian, I know you had a new story you want to kick us off with, so why don't you take it away? The only thing I want to talk about is our country has come off the cliff of a default on our debt. Uh, it could be a much longer conversation, but if anyone's following along, that um, has quieted markets. It's interesting to see over the next couple of weeks where interest rates go if the Fed leaves them alone at the meeting coming up in June this month uh, and what they do in July, given that uh, you know we've averted default and our country is now focused on the budget coming up and obviously a lot of other, a lot of other economic issues, certainly interest rates. So um, there's a lot of, of uncertainty still in the marketplace, but at least we've, we've calmed the fears around uh, our debt default and that uh, circus that was happening over the last you know, 60, 75 days. John, take it away with something more interesting. You got it. I did find an article and I find it fascinating. And it's mostly what we've already been talking about um, throughout this podcast. But it's interesting to hear it in the words of um, this, this writer, Henry Graybar with Slate. So I'm just going to read you some highlights out of this article. The ticking time bomb, it's titled, The Ticking Time Bomb in America's Downtowns. Um, I'm reading, uh, The return to the office has stalled, and many once vibrant business districts have fallen on hard times. According to data from the brokerage firm such and such, almost all of the biggest office buildings in downtown Los Angeles are underwater on their loans. Tucker, you'll have to tell us if this is true. Meaning their owners owe more to the bank than the buildings are currently worth. LA's office towers have, on average, more than $230 in debt per square foot. And Bloomberg's John Gittleson reports the only building to sell this year went for $154. So they owe $234 and the trading level is $154. That doesn't bode well. And then they go, I like this article because they go to these, they're not always brokers. Here's Tom Piskorski, property market expert at Columbia Business School, goes on to say, in fact, downtown might have to f have a bit further to fall before it can be effectively revitalized. It's only possible if owners and bankers give up on their old model and their old valuations. We need more distress to get things moving. I think that's fascinating. Um, the article goes on to say, this is an interesting point. The owners who are defaulting on these loans are big institutional investors and the buyers, according to this chief economist, Jim Costello with MSCI, the buyers are local buyers with an appetite for tough projects and relationship with local land use regulators. The folks who've been buying these properties so far are local developer, operator, owner types. It's people who know how to swing a hammer. Super interesting. Um, and then lastly, um, as an example of all this, although this isn't a local owner operator, but uh, Wall Street Journal um, talked about an investment manager, Heinz, paid $60 million for a D.C. office building this spring, half of what it cost to develop it. Too bad for the builder, but good news for downtown, because that low price give, gives Heinz the headroom to renovate and entice a new tenant law firm, Davis Polk, to take half the space. I mean, that's as I read all this stuff, it's like, okay, I've seen this rodeo before. There's nothing new going on here. It's just, it always feels different, but like prices need to come down and maybe they need to come down even further. And entrepreneurial owner, investor, builders will move in. Interesting to see it going from institutional to local. Um, and as we talk about properties that are trading at new lows, I'll be curious if that theme holds up. Um, anyway. 
it's really interesting when you talk about downtown Los Angeles, uh, those statistics around the amount of debt that these buildings have and the worth of those buildings, even though there's very limited sale comps recently, is is accurate. I mean, obviously, it varies building to building, but the vast majority of buildings in downtown LA are, in fact, underwater. And the subtext of downtown LA that a lot of people aren't keeping in mind when analyzing the situation is that downtown LA has always struggled, right? This is a downtown area that really has no reason to be where it's located, right? It's not like downtown Seattle, like right on, you know, the sound or something like that. The reason downtown LA is located where it is, is because a hundred years ago, there was a river there that has no longer existed for decades. So you have this downtown LA uh, in this, you know, very congested, challenging to get to from the West Side area. Um, and there's really been no appreciation in rents in downtown LA, even even over the last 15 years. I mean, from 2009, 2010, when you had, you know, the trough of rental rates um, in most markets, you didn't see any, any real meaningful increases in, in pricing in downtown LA. And it's a market that historically has been in the high teens or low 20% um, availability rate. So you think about a market like that, it's just been a revolving door of large institutional buyers buying buildings and mostly selling for a similar amount to what they paid, sometimes a slight profit, sometimes a slight loss. And now that interest rates have moved so heavily, all of these people are going to be facing major equity or full equity wipeouts when they eventually do exit. Um, so you, you sit there and think, what was the underlying motivation of these people to buy these assets? I mean, it is, it is kind of funny where, you know, you're buying something where tons of people before you have bought and made no money and had really poor investments. And then the next person comes along and thinks that they're going to do well. I think it all comes down to market timing. I think that downtown LA prior to COVID, um, the office market for large blocks of space became so tight in Los Angeles that if you were a 500,000 square foot user in LA, which LA is a market that gets users like that, at least before COVID, pretty regularly, there were literally no buildings that you could go to except for downtown LA. So I think that a lot of people thought, okay, it's only a matter of time until you know Google or Meta or Netflix or somebody leases 500,000 feet with very affluent jobs. Those people move into downtown LA, lease the you know, dozens and dozens of new, very high-end apartment buildings that have been delivered in the last, you know, couple of years. I mean, there's been thousands of new units of apartments delivered in downtown LA. And then you have a few people like that, and you get to that critical point, that inflection point, where all of a sudden downtown LA becomes really cool. You've got an amazing, you know, work, live, play type of environment for these companies, and it just never happened. Instead, COVID happened major homeless problem, half the retail closed, and now you just have an absolute disaster of an area that is really hard to imagine being able to fix itself, at, at least uh, on a you know near short-term or near medium-term time horizon. I mean, I think that this could easily take 20 years for downtown to get to where it was before. And it's really sad because uh, I think there's a lot of potential for cities to be amazing places to live but a lot of things have to go right for that to happen. Yeah, I think um, it's funny. I, I have had the, um, the, the, the opportunity to work with one of the big four accounting firms for many years. And <clears throat> I remember sitting in a conference room years ago in LA talking about their LA location and they were in downtown. And we pulled our, our local team, pulled up a rent chart and it was, I don't know, 10 year, five year horizon on rents and the rent growth was zero. <laughs> like, and he just said, this is, the, this is downtown LA. We don't have rent growth. And I want to say the rents were like in the high thirties, low forties. And, and at the time, I'm like, this is downtown class A space. This is a, you know, one of the three, four largest accounting and consulting firms in the world. They take what they, they pride themselves on saying, if you go into a city, Look for the nicest building. We're at the top of it. And the, and the rent chart was flat. And their choice was to stay that there with all this political pressure to stay in downtown L.A. Or at the time, 
they would have been like the first or second building at LA Live right? down by the Staples Center. And I just remember going on tour and being down there and then going over there. And it's like, why, why would anybody go here? And then you fast forward to the last few years and it's, you know, rents are through the roof and there's this whole buzz, but no one's really there if they have to be. It's because there was like your point, Tucker, it's you know, everyone you talk to is like, we don't really want to be here, but there's no other places for us to go. And that's not a good recipe to keep tenants and keep companies in any area is the last possible place you can go. So, yeah, D- downtown LA has has its own specific challenges, right? If, if you've been a office tenant in downtown LA for 20, 30 years and you have a workforce that is used to that location and then all of a sudden you move it to Century City, uh, which is the other major CBD, although it's about a third of the size of downtown LA. But it's another like class A high rise, you know, like AM50 law firm, big financial service type um, center in, in LA. And the issue is, even though it's only maybe seven miles away, in the morning, it adds an hour of your commute if you're going uh, east to west. So I think a lot of these companies that would like to move out of downtown LA don't really have a good option, right? Where do you move without creating just an insane commuting burden for your team? And it is true that a lot of people are already dealing with major commuting burdens to get to downtown LA, but at least everyone is used to it. You know, when they took that job and started working in that company, they knew what they were getting themselves into. Uh, and if you change somebody's 45 minute commute to an hour commute, they might leave. They didn't sign up for that. Somebody made that decision for them versus, you know, going into that job search eyes wide open on where they were. I've got a question for you. What about this investment in uh, rail and metro for the Olympics that's supposed to make, uh, you know, solve the commuting problem for all everyone in L.A.? Is there anything to that? Yeah, the 2028 Olympics are going to be in Los Angeles and there are. Uh, a wild amount of infrastructure projects that are going on. Uh, there, of course, have been a lot of infrastructure projects that have been built over the last decade in L.A., and really nothing's contributed to the types of people that work at, you know, like a high-end law firm or at, you know, financial services company. The percentage of people using public transit in L.A. is laughably low. I mean, it's, it's, it's really sad. Um, I think the biggest impact that the... 2028 Olympics will have on infrastructure is how people use and access LAX, um, the airport. Uh, There are some really interesting projects going on there where people will no longer uh, like drive to the curb or Uber to the curb. Everyone's going to be brought in from a like major central point um, on train uh, on like a, on a light rail. It's, you know, short light rail, but yeah, Los Angeles uh, international airport is, a really challenging airport to access and that's going to be fixed. So um, we'll see that may be interesting, but I definitely don't think come 2027 or 28 or 29, when uh, ostensibly all these you know projects will have been wrapped up that all of a sudden the, you know, typical person working in a class A office building is now going to be taking light rail or a train or subway. I also think that when you're in a market that has be historically been a, not a transit kind of uh, driven market, people become habituated to driving to work, um, right or wrong. That's just what they do. And so in Seattle, we've we do have a big light rail infrastructure currently uh, in operation and currently expanding. Um, But you don't see uh, the rank and file employees um, ditching their cars to ride right light rail to work. It's just not happening. So I think the notion that if you build it, they'll use it uh, everyone's going to use it. It's just wrong. Um, it's nice to have. P- certainly people use it to the airport. Tourism benefits from it. But I don't think it's going to have the kind of impact that some people may perceive it's going to have just because it's there. I think you hit the nail on the head. I was going the same way on is it's it's cultural thing, right? So Boston was, you know, if you talk to the people that were involved, Boston was given the nod that they were going to be selected <clears throat> for the for the Olympics that LA ended up winning because Boston backed out. And part of the, uh, Boston has a, the oldest uh, train system uh, in the, in the country. Uh, It is abysmal. And a lot of people wanted the Olympics because of the infrastructure improvements, but we have a, a community or culture of using 
using our transportation system. It just has gotten really bad. And and the goal of the Olympics is the athletes have to get to their venue to compete within 20 minutes on public transportation in a lot of cases. So it would have been a great opportunity for a city like Boston, uh, but for someone in L.A. that isn't using their car, are they really going to go down and wait at a bus stop or a train stop? No, no way. It's just not going to happen. Uh, a different perspective on this question, uh, on this topic, though, is I was sitting with someone here in Boston last week, and and they were talking about there's this is a someone involved in the construction of a brand new eight hundred thousand square foot tower that they were going to go spec on, and now they've decided to pull back and wait an office tower, and they've been meeting with the city, and they want to get two per thousand parking at the building. The city is pushing them towards one or all the way down to 0.7.8. And the city just doesn't want the cars in, in Boston. And the, the issue is, is we can't, we, we can't even, the, the city is, is so congested from a, from a vehicle perspective. It is stunting the growth because it, that is impacting the size of the building the developer wants to build because they want parking in the building because the data shows that if you don't have parking in the building to support the tenants, you get your return is lower. You get less rent, uh, but the city is like no way. We're not taking on all those uh, those additional cars. So it, it's a real issue here from from that perspective. Is we're already at a point where there's too much congestion. The city is going deep into dedicated bus lanes, deep into dedicated biking lanes, and it has just created mayhem. And when you used to be able to go the two miles from the from the financial district to the back bay would take you 15, 20 minutes. It's 45 minutes right now because of all the congestion. It's it, it's making working in Boston and not either walking, taking a bike or or public transportation. I hate to say it because that could take 45 minutes, but you can't get around the city in a car right now. It's it's really prohibitive. Yeah, that's an interesting point, and uh, I think a smart take by Boston. Uh, there is a inverse correlation to. Uh, how vibrant your urban centers are if you were to look across all major cities in the US uh, and the amount of parking that they have, right? It's, it's kind of a surprising thing, right? You know, way less parking usually means a much more vibrant downtown. And you start thinking through, you know, why that why that's the case uh, and what are the contributing factors. And I think it makes sense um, on a sort of second level of thinking basis. But when somebody tells you that, you think, what, what do you mean? How does anyone get downtown if there's no parking? But if, uh, you know, there, if you don't have 20 or 30 percent of your downtown as parking lots or parking garages, there's a lot more uh, apartments and retail and things that are activating the downtown areas. Uh, and generally, there's a lot less congestion because people are using ride sharing or public transit to get into the downtowns, creating, you know, a greater population density which uh, allows these urban areas to support uh, a lot more retail and all of these different things that contribute to making urban areas a, a cool spot to be. Yeah, so I got two things to talk about today. Um, the first is this, we get reports every single week um, from, anyone can get them, you, you, our listeners can get them, from Castle Building Systems, K-A-S-T-L-E. And they've become kind of the barometer of return to work uh, in the country right now with the with statistical information. And the reason being is they are the company that by and large uh, produces, you know, security gates and occupancy sensors. So when people badge into their building. So if you think about your your key card, if you work in a building that has a key card access, um, they're anonymizing all the data of who's coming in and when and then providing reports on a weekly basis around the country. They're tracking 10 major metro markets, um, capturing some from the south, uh, like the great state of Texas, uh, northeast cities, west coast, et cetera. So it's a real kind of a broader snapshot of what's going on in the country. And um, what's been really interesting is that since about late January, early February, uh, their report shows that occupancy has kind of um, hit a level that it is perceivably not going to ex exceed for quite some time, and that is 50%. And so I've been noticing the news, been capturing some of that, saying that, you know, have we hit this, like, new threshold where people are only going to come in 50% of the time, or the, those that lease space are only coming in, their people are only coming in 50% of the time. And uh, I think that's, yes, it's down from what numbers were previously, but also keeping in mind that there could be some... Um, 
some data points that are not really pulling, which is like, hey, well, we'll we might be at 50%, but what were we before? Because just like an airline or a parking garage, never do you have 100% of people at every single company coming in every single day. So it's not like don't use 100% as like, oh, we used to be at 100% occupancy in our downtowns. We never were. Um, for those that, again, for the, we're talking about space that's leased, not space that's vacant. Um, so I just thought it was interesting, uh, to, to see that it's been kind of hitting the 50%. And the question for the group really is like, do you think we're going to exceed that? Or do you think we've kind of hit a new threshold for the time being where we're going to sit at 50%, um, for some time to come? Um, and I also have another comment on, on the jobs report, what I want to, I want to hit on quickly after we finish this just quick discussion. Yeah, can I can I speak to this? And I think it's a bit of a rabbit hole, and we'll have to decide how far down it we want to go. Um, but you've got, um, you know, badge swipes, and you're translating that to occupancy, which I think is not directly. It's not the best way to do it. Here's a here's an anecdote. Um, I think I can name them. I don't think they would be offended or upset for me to say. Um, I got a tour and a visit with the the real estate team at LinkedIn and uh, they use their real estate team is in one particular building and they use themselves as a learning lab and they move furniture around and it's all dynamic and they track what works and what doesn't work. And they, they're very sensor heavy. Um, so they're tracking utilization, um, which I think is a more interesting term than occupancy. Um, and at their peak pre pandemic, they never really got above 50% utilization which, by the way, I, I believe is during business hours. We can go into deeper down the rabbit hole and talk about the other 12 hours of the day that this highly valued real estate is just sitting idle. Um, I mean, in India, are they running 24 hours a day? Um, but the uh, at their peak, they were never more than 50%. And this is a tech company. I was just blown away by that. So, uh, you know, the fact that you're representing 50% as being low, I think it's always been sort of 50%. And I wonder and I worry that badge swipes aren't a good indication of occupancy. They're really an indication of building access. Might be one guy coming in to get his cup of coffee and going home. Um, or if they come in multiple times, does it have unique ID? So they don't count that one twice. If he runs out for lunch and comes back, is that too? I, I just don't know what data they're getting. And I'm not sure badge swipes are what you really want are sensors. Um, how often is that desk being used? And I think that number will be really, really low. Yeah, yeah, John, and I that's that's uh, akin to Tucker's comment earlier in the pod, which is there's a lot of news out there and people aren't really kind of digging in to understand exactly what's behind it. Um, and there are so many different variables for how you could track that data that I think it's just a bit too broad of a statistic to say that, hey, this is where we're at. Um, and this is where we're going to stay. So, I, and you're right, we could go down a big rabbit hole. It could be an entire podcast on, on what occupancy is. But I want to hit on one more thing quickly for a quick discussion before we dig into other topics. And that's the job report. Nobody talked about that. That was last week. You might have, everyone probably read the big headline, which is that we added 339,000 new jobs to the market. But I was interested because I thought, hmm, it doesn't really feel like that. We've had the Fed raising interest rates in an effort to kind of cool, slowly cool down the economy not necessarily slam the brakes. Um, and so I was interested to read like, well, what is what exactly accounted for that? And what's really going on? Um, and if you notice in the report, the majority of the jobs were healthcare um, and government jobs. So taking the government out, because I don't, you know, I'm, I'm focused more on the private sector. Um, it's healthcare. Um, and so it wasn't necessarily, as you can imagine, it's not tech, it's not professional services. So to me, it was like, okay, I'm kind of, let's, let's dig a little bit further. And what was astonishing was like all the mixed signals, because I think people took it as like the stock market obviously had a huge, massive Friday, um, rate, you know, by and large things went up 2% across the board. But I looking at the report even further, it to me, it sent sended mixed signals. And I don't think it's all too much to celebrate. Um, because yes, you had a really strong job growth report. Um, but you have a couple things that make me concerned as just someone who tracks these things, because it obviously impacts, you know, the world of commercial real estate. And that is you have a priming, a rising prime age, um, labor force, um, participation rate, meaning that the people that are participating in the labor force, which is typically like 24 to late fifties is aging, as we all know, baby boomers and so forth. Um, and we don't have as much coming on replacement. 
Um, the second thing is if you looked at the report, we actually have a cooling wage growth. So wages are not keeping pace with jobs. And then finally, we actually have rising unemployment. Now it only went up 20 basis points. Um, but to my point is, is a overall solid report, but a lot of mixed signals. And I don't think we're out of the woods yet. Um, and it was just a little bit misleading. If anyone's celebrating, oh, we added 339,000 jobs, we'll take out all the government jobs in healthcare and it wasn't so great. So I'm not being a pessimist um, or a contrarian for the sake of being one, but really interesting. And I'm curious where we're going to head for the balance of the year. It's a great point. And the interesting thing is that, you know, we've, we've been uh, trained, I think, over time to look at jobs reports and see a healthy number and be pos- you know, optimistic and say, that's great for our economy. And in these times, when we're all looking for the Fed to stop raising rates, we see a big number and you'd think the market would go down because it gives the Fed still more ammunition to think that inflation isn't over yet. And, um, you know, the I think from a positive perspective, there is wage growth is a big part of inflation, right? The more money people make, the more they spend. So seeing wage growth go down, which is counterintuitive to an American who wants our country to prosper and our people to prosper. It's like, oh, good. We, you know, we added too many jobs, but the unemployment rate went up higher than expected and wage growth cooled more than expected. Great. Maybe they will still pause the the increases in June. So it's, it's, you're right. And, and if you looked at those numbers, uh, as you did, Owen, they're all over the board. There's, there's no big sector. I think you, you named healthcare, but it still wasn't, um, if you look at the statistical averages of different sectors, there's usually one real growth. This was very d- diversified across many sectors, which to me just makes it even more confusing from someone who doesn't study it every day. But Well, and, and construction is booming. And construction is very interest rate driven industry, which was like, that was kind of confusing, scratching my head. And it was also clear that employ- employers are holding on to their employees. We haven't yet seen, you know, we get, aside from the tech layoffs, which we all read about, um, so, yeah, interesting stuff. It'll be interesting to see how we play out the rest of the year. But I don't think that um, I don't think the Fed's necessarily done raising rates. And I think for the commercial real estate world, all the investors and the developers and so forth really just want some sort of certainty or or some sort of normalcy to return. And right now, there's a lot of apprehension about what's going to happen in the future. And I think until that settles, we're still going to have a little bit of volatile kind of uh, market in terms of dispositions, acquisitions, or lack thereof, that people are just on the sidelines, not willing to deploy capital. Okay. I have a uh, personal story I, I want to share. So uh, I'm working on a uh, industrial build-a-suit project in the Inland Empire, which is the uh, like east of Los Angeles and Orange County. It's a 600 million square foot market, one of the largest industrial markets in the country. Uh, and it's, it's interesting because it's a site that is not currently uh, being used as a like large-scale logistics building. And the land basis is slightly higher than the rest of the market. And we have control of the site. We've brought in a handful of developers to look at it. And what's so fascinating is that the reaction from some developers versus other developers have been very different. There have been some landlords or some developers that have said, this is amazing. We'd love to do this deal. What do we have to do to get it? Uh, Just pursuing it very aggressively. And then there have been others that have said, hey, we don't think that we can make this work because the rental rates that you're going to have to pay in order to justify buying the land at this price are such that they're above market. We're not comfortable taking the risk. And it's so fascinating. In, In this particular case, the developers that have said that I think are very wrong around what market rents are, and maybe they're just not market experts in, in the Inland Empire specifically. But it's very fascinating to think about, you know, every, you know, in, in this case, it's a non-industrial site being sold at industrial land prices. But all of these buildings that are being sold, and I know we're going to talk about this more later, you know, there's a there's a willing buyer and a willing seller, although sometimes the willing seller is being forced to sell because of um, you know, a loan issue or something like that. But people are making bets to buy these buildings and being sort of courageous and maybe risky uh, at the same time that others are being very conservative. And it's just very interesting to see, particularly in the industrial sector, where a lot of these developers had not previously been cautious. They've just said, oh, it's you know going to deliver in 18 months and the rent's 5% higher than the top end of market right now. I'll do that deal all day. You know, there have been 
recent years where industrial rents have gone up by over 50% in almost every major market in the country. What's 5% you know, in a year for appreciation? Not much. So anyway, just fascinating to see how different landlords are handling the current rate environment. Let me ask you a question. Um, is your client, the tenant, investment grade? Uh, yes. Okay, that makes it very interesting then because if you have an investment, you just it's, you're effectively just you're buying a coupon, and you would think that the the return on the deal is still such that 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 fifteen year, ten, twelve, fifteen, twenty year lease is an oversized return as compared to the marketplace. So it still should attract a wide range of investors, and and anybody who does the development will be able to sell it into the market, the secondary markets, right? So it's that is interesting. Yeah, it was very strange and of great surprise when we receive feedback from a couple people with that perspective. I, I should note just that the overwhelming amount of people were incredibly interested and it was just these few outliers. And one of the outliers um, I've done a, a good amount of business with, I've done other Build-A-Suit transactions with, and I found them to be you know very smart, very reasonable people. And I had a call with them and I'm like, look, I've never told you this before, but I think you all are so incredibly wrong here unless you're underwriting negative rent growth, you know, between now and, you know, 18 months, 24 months from now when the building's delivered, there's no way that this doesn't comp out. And here's the way that you should be looking at it. Here are some comps. Um, so anyways, it just, it, it's interesting the way, the different ways that people are looking at deals and that some industrial landlords in particular that have been sort of perennially bullish over the last five years are a little less confident right now. Well, and that could be just a result of, you know, I don't I don't know, specifically know the amount of sublease space in the Inland Empire, but there can be variables that give people reason to be fearful. Um, and they don't want to compete with certain product that may be coming online or stuff that might be being disposed of. But also keep in mind that historically rent expectations um, are often, you know, you mentioned like the market's been really hot, but now I would suggest that maybe some developers are worried that their rent expectations are higher than what they can actually achieve because, the market 18 months from now, I don't know when your project delivers, um, but are not going to be what they are today. I don't know if they're going to be higher, they're going to be lower, but developers often focus on asking rents and not where actually deals are getting done at. And then they apply, you know, these, um, you know, these arbitrary 4%, you know, year over year annual rent appreciation rates um, that are also, again, like one or two years out from now. Um, so I don't, again, I don't know about your transaction, but definitely interesting times and definitely different than how landlords might have priced developments 18, 24, 36 months ago. Uh, hey guys, I got one more news story I want to talk about, um, which actually made national news. I had a colleague of mine on the East Coast ping me about it. Um, last week, we on May 31st, uh, Amazon had a, a walkout and it was a walkout by those employees um, based on three things. I'll talk about those three things in a second. And the news primarily picked up on one of them, which was that uh, it was their call to the office three days a week. And that wasn't entirely it, but it was one of the three pillars for why they walked out. It was um, call to the office three days a week. It was that Amazon isn't um, being as, they're not being good environmental stewards. So climate change kind of uh, topic stuff. And then lastly, just the way the leadership is being compensated and how they uh, handled layoffs uh, during this last round of layoffs, which happened in late 2022. Um, it was interesting because the media loved to pick up on the enormity of the walk-offs, but it was actually, or walk-outs, I should say, but it was actually a lot less than what the headlines might have made you think. So yeah, there was a lot of people with bullhorns out in the street, you know, complaining about this and that. And um, again, you know, like by and large, it was uh, presented as a a result of having to come back to the office three days a week, but it was just, um, I saw it and, you know, personal opinion aside it, to me, it was just like a, another indication that we still have a really strong job market because to simply walk out on your employer, um, for this, for, for one of the reasons being coming to the office three days a week, I just found rather fascinating. I mean, the thought of c complaining and walking off a job for three days, having to come to the office three days a week, rewinding 36 months ago is, would be unheard of, at least in my world. Um, and to think that people aren't scared of 
losing their job or the impact it may have on future growth within the company, be promoted and so forth. Um, it's just telling me that we still have a really strong jobs market or these people are just extremely passionate about never going to the office. Um, but anyway, it, will, it'll, it reminded me of the 80s and some of our listeners might be too young to remember this, but um, you know, when Ronald Reagan you know, was, was faced with the air traffic controllers um, going to threaten to strike, um, they struck, he fired them all and hired new people um, shortly thereafter. And Amazon obviously is not going to take that approach, nor should they necessarily. But interesting times we're in where, where people are walking off the job for having to come to the office three days a week. It's, it is interesting. It, to me, um, <clears throat> it immediately goes to question um, the culture of the company, right? So why do people work there? What's the, what's the environment that they work in? And having some, some clients and friends and people who have done startups coming out of Amazon, um, you know, it's, it, it's a mixed bag, but there's certainly an under, undertone of being a very intense and challenging place to work. Um, and, you know, when people start to behave this way, I think leadership really has to look at what, what are we building here? And, you know, we, did we get too big too fast? Did we hire the wrong people? Did we create the wrong culture? Because that's, uh, it's intense to, for, to just walk off the job at a company you're supposed to, you know, be a part of. That's... I, you hit the nail on the head, Brian. I think the best comment there was if you loved your job and you truly loved your company and the culture was fantastic, would you ever do that? I think the answer is no. Um, so to me, it told me that there's really underlying currents that are beyond what's even being reported, which is climate change three days a week and executive compensation and how they handle layoffs. It's that it's just not as great as it might otherwise be because you don't see that happening at some of those companies around the world that you are known to have great cultures. There might be some people speaking up on their internal Slack channels, uh, but they're not walking off the job. I have a notion that maybe this genie, we're not going to be able to put it back in the bottle for the laptop class. This idea that, you know, you really want me to drive an hour each way just to sit there on my laptop instead of here on my laptop. Like I get it. I, I might walk out if that was my thing. Like, give me a reason to be in the office. Are there things that happen when we're together in the office? Are we, if all I'm doing is sitting at a computer and and that's what the pandemic showed people is for the people, who, for the laptop class, the folks that are just working at the computer. Um, I get it. I get it. I wonder if we maybe can't put that genie back in the bottle for that laptop class. I'll give you a personal story. Um, uh, a client of mine, who works at a, a large software company who's a developer. He, he is true and true like a systems developer. And the he, he's in the office three days a week, and he spends a lot of time, obviously, on his computer. But there's a, also a big portion of what he has identified as needing to do a, a, a uh a transfer of, of institutional knowledge from some of the older developers that are in their 60s. Think about Amazon's been along, around a long time. And this is someone who, who literally writes code every day and has identified a need to be in the office to talk to people who are working in this archaic code from the 80s and 90s because they pull it up and they're like, what the hell do we got here, right? And that's, that's a developer. Now think of any other job where you have to work with people all day long and you don't think there's a benefit for being in the office at least three days a week? I mean, come on. That's it. it I don't see something full time back to five days a week. I think that ship has totally sailed. But there has to be that in-person time for really every position in the way that I see business thriving. By the way, three days a week doesn't get it done. If your point is to have your teams come together at three days a week, you have one day of overlap. Like if it was half the group comes in Monday Tuesday, Wednesday, and the other half comes in Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. You get Wednesday together. That's not the goal. You go to four days, a guaranteed minimum of three days of overlap. So, well, you just make everyone come back the same days, too. Right? That's what I, that's what a lot of companies I have done as well is to say everyone's in the office Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Monday, Friday, flex. Let's talk about building sales, John. I know you've been excited to talk about some of the buildings that have traded at major discounts to where they were before. Uh, let's hear what you researched, what you got, why this is happening. 
and what the interesting points are. So the first thing that's interesting to note is I really sort of work two markets, um, San Diego and, and also the Bay Area, um, where I was sort of early up there and planting the flag. Um, San Diego hasn't seen a trade that represents the decline. It hasn't happened yet. In fact, there's a crazy high comp. Um, I think we've talked about ARE, Alexandria, you know, pulling back, taking the foot off the gas, pausing developments, uh, pausing any new spend. So they, they sold a building in Torrey Pines, a lab building. Um, and Divco West bought it for $1,186 a square foot. And so you can kind of see what that's all about. I mean, there's a really um, constrained market, Torrey Pines, where you could never buy product in that market. And ARE was, you know, the, the um, 800-pound gorilla snapping up all the real estate. Um, so here's an opportunity to get into that market. And if you take a 15-year time horizon, maybe. Um, oh, by the way, it's got uh, Scripps Research, or the new group named Caliber, in it on a five-year lease. So it's not like a long-term safe leased investment. These guys are gambling that when that lease rolls, if they don't renew, that market is a preeminent market and they're going to get it back. So San Diego hasn't seen the decline yet. Um, it's coming like a train coming down the track. Uh, but what I will speak to, and I, I think Brian, you mentioned you're familiar with this transaction. So Mitsubishi owned uh, Union Bank and Mitsubishi owned um, 350 California Street in San Francisco. Um, in 2020, Mitsubishi looked at selling the building and um, at $250 million, $840 a square foot. Um, they didn't sell it. Um, Mitsubishi recently sold Union Bank to U.S. Bank. So where they owned the building for their, you know, wholly owned sub, and they occupied, I think, 100% of the building. Um, now you, now they don't own Union Bank anymore. Union Bank has vacated the building. It's 25% occupied. That's a seller that, you know, good time or bad time, it's time to sell. So they sold it. And it, consistent with that new story I shared earlier about local, you know, um, owner, operator, builders stepping in. Um, this is a perfect example of that. SKS, uh, Real Estate Partners, a, a local San Francisco developer, um, moved in. And uh, they paid somewhere between 60 and $68 million, um, basically 200 to $225 a square foot for the building. 75% discount from what Mitsubishi was thinking about in 2020. Um, so that's a seller who just chooses to sell and goes and finds the market where it is. SKS, a local investor, you know, that's a reset at a dramatically lower basis where SKS is going to do some cool things to the building. And they see it as a smart long-term acquisition. I think that is really, that's the story of the market. And they're maybe the first, and the fact that SKS is moving in, I think that buoys the market a little bit, helps to sort of peg a new market price. It's not good news for most of the folks that own those buildings today, but um, fascinating story. Brian, you knew something about that sale? Yeah, I was just, I'm following it because it's been national news. It's been in the journal a lot, but for our listeners, that is the difference between a $20 rent and a $65 rent, right? So without any capital invested, and they're going to invest in the building. But it is a drastic reduction in the cost to the tenants to create the same return for the owner. And, you know, any broker will tell you, and, and certainly good brokers know how to leverage this better, but it, all you need is one building that's 75% vacant that now can do deals at $20, $25 a foot to bring the entire market with it. And you'll start to see certain assets be able to chase it, ones that have been positioned correctly, that haven't chased the cheap capital, that don't have basis that are too high. They can come down with it and chase deals with this building. Uh, and you'll have others that are effectively put on the shelf because their their capital stack doesn't allow them to go do deals. And I remember this happening after, you know, the 08 financial crisis. And there were actually Tishman's buyer had a couple buildings positioned properly. And they were doing deals $20, $25 a foot below market at the time, below the market. They were the market. And um, it just created all this opportunity for tenants to to renew their leases at a discount, to just create all this leverage. And a lot of companies moved. 
and and certainly Tishman benefited from that. They wanted cash flow and occupancy, and and they were able to achieve that in a market where no one else was doing deals. Yeah, so great point. Um, and as soon as this building trades at, at some massive discount, yes, that new owner perceivably can do cheaper deals. Um, but I went through this in the 2008-2009 financial crisis where the building I'm in today, uh, which is Russell Investment Center in downtown Seattle, many would suggest it's the nicest building in the city uh, here in Seattle, um, traded at a massive discount because it was owned by Wash Mutual Bank, who we all know the story defaulted and so forth. Well, the owner came in, bought the building for, I think it was $113 a square foot. It might've been 117, 113. Um, needless to say, it's a fraction of the value today. And it was perceived by many that the building was just gonna do fire sale deals, fill the whole building up all 900,000 square feet overnight and be happy. The reality was, yes, they did deals. Yes, they were competitive, but only as much as they needed to be. So I wanna to stress to people, just because someone buys a building super cheap does not mean it's gonna be dumped on the market at some like, you know, uh, you know, ridiculous low pricing that would be indicative of like a class C building, right? They're only going to drop rates as much as they need to, to be competitive. And that's what this building did. Um, and so, yes, it does help the market and it will help that subset of, uh, asset class that that building competes with. But I just think that the market back then thought it was going to be like, holy cow, we're going to, there's gonna be a line at the door. Cause we're going to be able to buy a a Hyundai, you know, or sorry, a Mercedes for the price of a Hyundai didn't happen. And so it really just dropped only as much as they needed to. Um, so keep that in mind as well. Yeah. Owen, don't you think though, just, just crystal balling. If, if you remember that time, the, everyone expected there to be, um, impacts on tenants, but there was no real impact on the tenant. The vacancy rates didn't move or they went down. Right. So there was no real blocks of space out there. Uh, to be able to use as leverage, or at least a lot less. I think now every single building, I turn around and look out, out here in Boston, every single building that you look at has massive blocks of space or shadow space that's coming online. So I think I think this is going to be different because the availability and vacancy rates are way through the roof compared to they were in that, in that cycle. Well, agree. And the difference now from previously is that previously, thinking back to 2008, 2009, there was nothing that had to do with work from home. People came to the office five days a week. So um, there was a lot more optimism on when these buildings would, would lease. Nowadays, coupled with the facts that you just laid out, Brian, now you've got this um, concern that we'd never go back like we once did. And if that's the case, then by and large across the country, we have way too much office space as a country. And it will never, we don't need it all. And it could be years upon years upon years of product that we would have to work through before we ever get back to um, kind of the equilibrium between like a tenants and a landlord's market, which for most markets hovers around eight to 12%. So yeah, that's the biggest difference now is that we just don't know if there is the demand to begin with. At the same time though, I think we will continue to see a meaningful amount of office new construction over the next 10, 20 years. It's just going to be all very high quality class A office space that are in the right locations where people want to be located. And it's all of this class C, class B office space that is going to be torn down or vacant or, you know, essentially functionally obsolescent. So it's, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting time. I mean, we were talking about this on a podcast, maybe five or six episodes ago. Uh, and I guess this relates a little bit to what we were talking about, uh, you know, with the Amazon walkout over the three days a week and all that. And I think, and again, this we've talked about this a bit. It's just that imagine if you're, uh, you know, early stage startup and you're working to solve some very hard problem that's a product solution or something. And you're in the office three days a week, work from home two days a week. And then you're competing against another startup, similarly funded, solving the same problem. And they're, they're in the office five days per week. That would make me really nervous if I'm an employee of that other company that's only in three days a week. I mean, look, like for me personally, it's so convenient to work from home. I've got an amazing home office. Nobody interrupts me. I'm super efficient. I'm you know personally accountable. I know I'm going to work hard no matter where I am. But I'm embarrassed when I'm on Zoom with somebody and I'm at home. Like I'm actually embarrassed. Uh, 
because of the signaling it sends not around like, oh, like, you know, this is a company that works, you know, with corporate real estate and they're not even in the office. And I do work from home on, you know, rare occasion, but I'm embarrassed for people to see me like that because I think the signal, at least in my mind, is that if you're working from home, you're now working as hard. And I think that that is true for a vast majority of people. And the people that are working um, in the office and the reason that, you know, these people at Amazon don't is I don't think they care about the success of Amazon, right? It's just a job. They're just content being paid whatever they're being paid. And they're not a, you know, stakeholder in the success of the company in an intimate way. Whereas if you're a, you know, team member at an early stage startup or something and your company isn't successful, you're probably going to lose your job because the company is going to fail. And I think that fundamentally that's the difference is people that really, really care about the performance of their team and company uh, and the overall success of the business, I think are much more likely to be in the office. And those that aren't are much more likely to put their own personal convenience ahead of what the what's good for the team. I love that. And I got to quote a client of mine. I won't say who they are, but I was with the CEO last week looking for office space for their team of 50 to growing to 75 people. And he said they're back four, sometimes five days a week. And I said, wow. I said, what is it that allows you or, you know, creates that kind of environment. And he said, you know, us, we're venture backed. We don't, we have a burn rate that's really high and the money is only gonna last so long until we get a new financing round or we go public. So we're in the fight of our life. Like every, not every day counts, every hour counts. And if we're not as hyper productive and hyper focused as possible, money, we have a wasting asset, which is, you know, th theoretically like this, this money's only last so long. So if we don't work as hard as we possibly can, we might we might run out of the next um, iteration of our company before we raise the next another round. So for them, it was like we got to be together because we can't afford any sort of complacency. Not to say our people are lazy because they're not, but they've got to be here solving these problems. Otherwise, we're going to miss it. Um, and so think of that mentality versus working for a Fortune, you know, fifty company where. There, whether you work hard today or not is not going to impact the organization. It just isn't. There's so tens of thousands of people that work for that company versus that mentality of a small, scrappy startup that has 50 growing to 75 people. A completely different world. Yeah, what's the, what is the saying that uh, comes to mind? People don't leave bad companies. They leave bad managers. And you know, the inverse is that they work hard for, for good managers and good companies or good people, uh, and they don't work hard for others. And you know, as you get into these bigger organizations, it's really hard to have high quality people at you know at the tip of the spear. And and people start to get that attitude where it just doesn't matter, right? And then working from home, it doesn't matter if I'm not in the office. It doesn't matter if I only put in four hours a day. Um, which you know, short sighted in my mind. The people that we work with every day that work really hard, you can just see them performing and, and, and a lot of times being a lot happier. I think, you know, people equate happiness with not working. I think happiness is more in this, everything I see, it's around, it's around doing something you actually enjoy doing. And, uh, that means if you come to work and you enjoy it, it's, you know, it, it all flows through. And, um, you know, it's unfortunate that these large organizations like an Amazon have such, such challenges because, you know, outside of our world, and, you know, people that pay attention to this stuff, it looks like Amazon is, you know, one of the greatest companies in the world. And, and from a product perspective and, and disruption perspective, they are. But certainly for their people, it doesn't seem to be the case right now, at least. Okay, we are almost out of time here. I know that Owen and John both had some examples of uh, some news articles that were quoting information that seemed very, very wrong. Uh, with a lot of bias. I'd love for the two of you to talk about those particular instances, and then we'll wrap up. John, why don't we start with you? Sure thing. Uh, yeah, there was just a, uh, David Marino uh, circulated an article to the local team uh, written by a local uh, life science real estate broker talking about, yeah, things are down, but we expect it to bounce back um, soon and uh, return to strength soon. And uh, he, he made the comment to the local team, like, uh, this guy's just wrong. Um, and then consider the source. Um, he's a perfectly good person, human being. Uh, and he represents one of the largest life science landlords across their portfolio, 
um, in San Diego. So whether he did it to, you know, support his client or whether his client asked him to go on record and talk about the good times coming, um, it's just consider the source. That's kind of his job to sort of prop things up and be positive and optimistic. It's just not an accurate portrayal of what's happening in the market, what's coming in the market. And I think that's just always the case. Um, now, maybe more than ever, as we read articles predicting what's happening in the market, uh, just consider the source and what's the natural bias, what's their interest in the story that they're telling. Um, maybe maybe it's not even intentional. Maybe it's subconscious. They're, um, but the fact that we saw an article recently talking about a really quick and healthy return to um, rising rents in lab space was just really misguided. John, if you think that listing brokers are generally biased around how the market's doing to try and support their landlords, do you think that you're biased in forecasting that the market is darker than it may be because you represent tenants? Yeah, we, we, we could certainly be vulnerable to that bias. Um, I try and catch it. I'm trying to report what I see. I'm trying to predict what's coming. And, you know, we're out negotiating every day in a market that doesn't, there is no market rent. We're doing price discovery. And so I think we're reporting what we're seeing, uh, but we're subject to the same kind of bias, I'd say. That's a great question, Tucker. And I, something I catch myself on all the time, because keep in mind, if, if we were biased and um, wrong with our assessment of the market, it jeopardizes what we're able to do for our clients. So I'm constantly checking myself and trying to figure out, am I being biased because I do only serve tenants? Because keep in mind, landlords are not bad people. I think we've said that on an earlier pod. We need those. We need the landlords because they afford our clients amazing places to work. And so there's never been a case in my career where I try and scorch the earth with a landlord through negotiations because they're a partner. They're a partner with everybody involved in the transaction. But one way to check on whether you're biased and whether your perception of the market is not um, accurate as you might think it is, is look at this, look at the empirical data. So for example, in Seattle, look at the, look at the statistics for life science. Let's stick on the life science topic. Okay. One of the hottest submarkets or subsets of real estate during the last three years has literally fallen off a cliff. And if someone were to tell me otherwise, I would point to a couple things. Number one, name the last transaction that was done in recent months, um, over say 5,000 feet. Okay. Number two, look at all these, the surge of sublet space hitting the market now, continuing to hit the market by life science occupiers who have yet to find a single tenant to take any of the subleases. And these subleases range from a couple thousand square feet onto 85,000 square feet. So a big swath of, of opportunities for people of varying sizes. Um, and then three, all this new product that was delivered, which is gorgeous product, like fantastic real estate, some of the best probably life science real estate on the West Coast, if not the country, still remains vacant for that that wasn't leased already uh, previously in the last three years. So there's ways to check yourself to say, I'm naturally akin to thinking one way, just like a landlord broker is. Um, but if I'm being told something that I think is wrong, just go to the data. Data's going to speak for itself. I, I have a follow-up question to that. Has anyone ever seen a pro forma for a landlord whoever who bought a building project decreasing rental rates in that pro forma never and that's one of the problems with pro forma development brian is that they if you look at their 10-year performer 15-year performer on their developments it goes up at a at a right angle at 45 degrees they will literally price in you know four percent annual rent growth um for the next 10 15 years not to mention the fact Think about tenants in the, in the world of commercial real estate. How many tenants do you think actually that sign a 10-year commitment, 10 or 12 or 15-year commitment, how many of them do you think actually play out all 10, 12, 15 years of their lease uninterrupted, meaning they haven't subleased any space, meaning the company hasn't sold, meaning they haven't gone bankrupt, meaning they haven't done a lease restructure? The list goes on. The, the, I, I don't recall what the statistic actually is. But it was a, it was an article that came out actually published by BOMA, which is a landlord trade organization called Building Owners and Managers Association. And the point of the article, and this was from years ago, was that very, very few tenants that sign a 10 to 15 year lease actually survive all 10 years without doing something. Doesn't mean they went out of business, but it means someone like us got involved and did a restructure. It could have been a myriad of different things. But landlords don't price that out. They don't build a building assuming, oh, we're going to do all these 10-year leases. And guess what? 
not one of the tenants or only one of the tenants is actually going to do all 10 years without, you know, readjust, readjusting their obligation. It just doesn't happen. I got a follow on question for you, Brian, or for the group. Uh, does anyone know a bank where you can cash a pro forma rent check? It's <laughs> a good point, John. But I think tenants are much more pragmatic and are, are looking at the marketplace based upon the information provided. Landlords look at it on it'll always go up. And there's a there's a complete, you know, there, there, there's a there is a lot of blue ocean between those two opinions. And I don't think we'll ever change how they look at it. And we just need to continue to advise our clients on you know, accurate and current data. Well said, Brian. Okay, with that, let's wrap up episode 12. Thanks so much to everyone who is listening. We will be back soon with episode 13. Thanks. Thanks.